The following is a conversation with Richard Crabe, founder of Numerai, which is a crowdsourced hedge fund, very much in the spirit of Wall Street bets, but where the trading is done not directly by humans, but by artificial intelligence systems submitted by those humans. It's a fascinating and extremely difficult machine learning competition where the incentives of everybody is aligned, the code is kept and owned by the people who develop it, the data, anonymized data, is very well organized and made freely available. I think this kind of idea has a chance to change the nature of stock trading and even just money management in general by empowering people who are interested in trading stocks with the modern and quickly advancing tools of machine learning. Quick mention of our sponsors, Audible Audiobooks, Child Labs Machine Learning Company, Blinkist app that summarizes books, and Athletic Greens, all-in-one nutrition drink. Click the sponsor links to get a discount and to support this podcast. As a side note, let me say that this whole set of events around GameStop and Wall Street bets has been uh, really inspiring to me as a demonstration that a distributed system, a large number of regular people are able to coordinate and collaborate in taking on the elite centralized power structures, especially when those elites are misbehaving. I believe that power in as many cases as possible should be distributed. And in this case, the internet, as it is for many cases, is the fundamental enabler of that power. And at the core, what the internet in its distributed nature represents is freedom. Of course, the thing about freedom is it enables chaos or progress or sometimes both. And that's kind of the point of the thing. Freedom is empowering, but ultimately unpredictable. And I think in the end, freedom wins. If you enjoy this podcast, uh, subscribe on YouTube, review it on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, support on Patreon, or connect with me on Twitter at Lex Friedman. As usual, I'll do a few minutes of ads now and no ads in the middle. I try to make these interesting, but I give you timestamps, so if you skip, please still check out the sponsors by clicking the links in the description. It's the best way to support this podcast. This episode is brought to you by Audible, an audiobook service that has given me hundreds, if not thousands of hours of education through listening to audiobooks. Many of the books I mentioned on this very podcast were ones I've listened to with Audible, which feels like cheating, but it's not, it's the same book. Examples include American Cosmic, which is about UFOs, Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, by the man himself, Richard Feynman, The Ascent of Money by Neil Ferguson, which is a great history about money, Your Inner Fish by Neil Shubin, which is one of my favorite books on evolution, The New Czar by Stephen Lee Myers, which I think is uh, the best most objective work on Vladimir Putin that I've read to date. I've read quite a lot of biographies about him. And of course, the book that I've mentioned way too many times, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by William Shire. I think it's over 50 hours long and one hell of a crazy ride through the darkest moments of human history. Next two weeks, Audible is doing a special offer for listeners of this podcast, only 10 bucks, 9.95 a month for your first six months. If you visit audible.com slash Lex or text Lex to 500 
500. I don't even know how that works or why you'd want to do that. Just go to audible.com slash Lex. That's way better, I think. But I might be clueless. If you like texting, I guess go, go ahead and text. They have thousands of titles to choose from. So visit audible.com slash Lex. Now they're considering supporting this podcast. So you know what to do if you want to help out. It's audible.com slash Lex. This episode is also brought to you by Trial Labs, a company that helps build AI-based solutions for businesses of all sizes. I love these guys, especially after talking to them on the phone and checking out a bunch of their demos and blog posts. If you're a business or just curious about machine learning, check them out at triolabs.com slash Lex. They're working on price optimization, early detection of machine failures, and all kinds of applications of computer vision. Their price automation and optimization work is probably their most impressive in terms of helping businesses make money. Also, they release open source code on GitHub, like a computer vision tracker, for example. Tracking, to me, is a fascinating problem. It very much remains unsolved, especially in the application of deep learning to this problem, but we've seen a lot of progress in the past five years. Anyway, Trial Labs is legit. If you own a business and want to see how AI can help you, check them out at triallabs.com slash Lex. This episode is also supported by Blinkist, my favorite app for learning new things. Blinkist takes the key ideas from thousands of nonfiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. As part of that, I use Blinkist to try out a book that I may otherwise never have a chance to read. And in general, it's a great way to broaden your view of the idea landscape out there and find books that you may want to read more deeply. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed nonfiction books. I also use Blinkist Shortcast to quickly catch up on podcast episodes I've missed. Right now, Blinkist has a special offer just for the listeners of this podcast. Go to Blinkist.com slash Lex to start your free seven-day trial and get 25% off of a Blinkist premium membership. That's Blinkist.com slash Lex. They want me to spell out Blinkist, but I'm sorry, folks. If you don't know how to spell Blinkist, you're on your own in this world. <laughs> the show is also sponsored by Athletic Greens, the all-in-one daily drink to support better health and peak performance. It replaced the multivitamin for me and went far beyond that with 75 vitamins and minerals. I do intermittent fasting of 16 to 24 hours every day and always break my fast with Athletic Greens. I honestly can't say enough good things about these guys. It's really one of my favorite products in this world. It helps me not worry whether I'm getting all the nutrients I need, especially since they keep iterating on their formula, constantly improving it. I love that kind of obsessive pursuit of perfection. Also, I'm a huge fan of fish oil. I've taken it every day for many years now. And Athletic Greens finally is now offering fish oil. And they're going to give listeners of this podcast free one-month supply of wild-caught omega-3 fish oil when you go to athleticgreens.com slash Lex to claim the special offer. That's athleticgreens.com for the drink and the fish oil. Trust me, it's worth it. You will love it. And now, here's my conversation with Richard Crabe.
from your perspective, can you summarize the important events around this amazing saga that we've been living through of Wall Street Bets, the subreddit and GameStop, and in general, just what are your thoughts about it from a technical to the philosophical level? I think it's amazing. It's like my favorite story ever. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> like when I was reading about it, I was like, this is the best. Um, and it's it's also, you know, connected with my company, which we can talk about. But what I liked about it is like, I like decentralized coordination and looking at the mechanisms that these are Wall Street Bets users use to hype each other up, to get excited, to prove that that they bought the stock and they're holding. Um, and and then also to see that how big of an impact that that decentralized coordination had. Um, it really was a big deal. Were you impressed by the distributed uh, coordination, the collaboration amongst like, I don't know what the numbers are. I know numerized looking at the data. After all of this is over and done, it'd be interesting to see like from uh, a large scale distributed system perspective to see how everything played out. But just from your current perspective, what we know, is it obvious to you that such incredible level of coordination could happen where a lot of people come together in a distributed sense, there's an emergent behavior that happens after that. No, it's not at all um, obvious. And one of the reasons is the lack of kind of like credibility. To coordinate with someone, you need to kind of make credible contracts or credible claims. So if you have um, a username on uh, our Wall Street bets, like some of them are, like Deep Fucking Value is one of them. That's an actual username, by the way, we're talking about there's a website called Reddit and there's subreddits <laughs> on it. And uh, a lot of people, mostly anonymous, I, I think for the most part, anonymous uh, can create user accounts and then can then just talk on forum-like style boards. You should know what Reddit is. If you don't know what Reddit is, check it out. Uh, uh, if you don't know what Reddit is, maybe go to uh, the uh, awe sub subreddit first, AWW with cute pictures of cats and dogs. That's my recommendation. Anyway. Okay, yeah, that would be a good start to Reddit. When you when you get into it more, go to our Wall Street bets. <laughs> it gets dark quickly. <laughs> oh, we'll probably talk about that too. Uh, so so yeah, so, so there's these users, and it's there's no contracts, like you're saying. There's no contracts. The 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 users are anonymous, um, but there are little things that that do help. So for example, if you've posted a really good investment idea in the past, that exists on Reddit as well, and it might have lots of upvotes. Um, and that's also kind of like giving credibility to your next to your next thing. Um, and then they are also putting up screenshots uh, like this. This is the these I, I, I here's the trades I've made and here's a screenshot. Now you could fake the screenshot, but um, but but still, it seems like if you've got a lot of karma and you've had a good p performance on the on the community, it somehow becomes credible enough for other people to be like, you know what? He actually probably did put a million dollars into this, and you know what? I can I can follow that trade easily. And there's a bunch of people like that, so you're kind of uh, integrating all that information together yourself to see, like, huh, there's something happening here, and then you jump onto this little boat of like behavior, like we should buy the stock or sell the stock, and then another person jumps on, another person jumps on. And uh, all of a sudden, you have just a huge number of people behaving in the same direction. It's like a flock of whatever birds. And, exactly. Or... What was strange with this one, it wasn't just, let's all buy Tesla. We love Elon. We love Tesla. Let's, let's all buy Tesla. Because that we've heard before, right? Everybody likes um, Tesla. Well, now, <laughs> now they do. Um, so 
what they did with this in this case, they're buying a stock that was bad. They're buying yeah. it because it was bad. And that's really weird because that's a little bit um, too galaxy brain for, for a decentralized community. Um, how did they come up with it? How did they know that was the right one? And the reason they liked it is because it had really, really high sh short interest. Mm -hmm. It had been shorted uh, more than its own uh, float, I believe. Um, and so they figured out that if they all bought this bad stock, they could short squeeze some hedge funds and those hedge funds would have to capitulate and buy the stock at really, really high prices. Mm -hmm. And we should say that shorted means that these are a bunch of people, when you short a stock, you're betting on the, on the, you're predicting that the stock is going to go down and then you will make money if it does. And then uh, what's a short squeeze? It's really that if you, if you are a hedge fund and you take a big short position in a, in a company, um, there's a certain level at which you can't sustain holding that position. Right. Uh, there's no limit to how high a stock can go, but there is a limit to how low it can go, right? So if you short something, you have infinite loss potential. And if the stock doubles overnight, like GameStop did, um, you're putting a lot of stress on that hedge fund. And that hedge fund manager might have to say, you know what, I have to get out of the trade. And the only way to get out is to buy the bad stock that they don't want, like they believe will go down. Uh, so it's an interesting situation, particularly because it's not zero sum. If you say, let's, let's all get together and make a bubble in watermelons. You buy a bunch of watermelons, the price goes up, it comes down again. It's a, it's a, it's a zero sum game. Mm -hmm. If someone's already shorted a stock and you can make them short squeeze, it's actually a positive sum game. So yes, some Redditors will make a lot of money, some will lose a lot, but actually the whole group will make money. And that's really, uh, that's really why it's, it was such a clever thing for them to, to do. And coupled with the fact that shorting, I mean, maybe you can push back, but to me always from an outsider's perspective seemed, I hope I'm not using too strong of a word, but it seemed almost unethical. Maybe not unethical. Maybe it's just an asshole thing to do. <laughs> it's it, okay. I'm speaking not from an economics or financial perspective. I'm speaking from just somebody who loves. I'm a fan of a lot of people. I love celebrating the success of a lot of people. And this is like the stock market equivalent of like haters. <laughs> I know that's not what it is. I know that there's efficient, you, you want to have in the economy efficient mechanism for punishing uh, sort of overhyped, overvalued things. That's what shorting, I guess, is designed for. But it just always felt like these people are just, because they're not just betting on the loss of the company. It feels like they're also using their leverage and power to manipulate media or just to write articles or just to hate on you on social media. And you get to see that with Elon Musk and so on. So, so this is like the man, the, the people like hedge funds that were shorting are like the the sort of embodiment of the evil or just the bad guy, the overpowerful that's misusing their power. And here's the crowd, the people that are standing up and rising up. So it's not just that they were able to collaborate on Wall Street bets to sort of effectively make money for themselves. It's also that this is like a symbol of the people getting together and fighting the centralized elites, the powerful. And that, you know, 
I don't know what your thoughts are about that in general. At this stage, it feels like that's really exciting that people have power, just like regular people have power. At the same time, it's scary a little bit because, you know, just studying history, people can be manipulated by charismatic leaders. <laughs> and so like, uh, just like Elon right now is like manipulating, uh, encouraging people to buy Dogecoin or whatever, uh, the, the, like you, there can be good charismatic leaders and there can be bad charismatic leaders. And so it's nerve wracking. It's, it's a little bit scary how much power a subreddit can have to uh, destroy somebody because right now we're celebrating they might be attacking or destroying somebody that everybody doesn't like. But what if they attack somebody that is actually good for this world? So that, and that's kind of the the awesomeness and the price of freedom is like, it could destroy the world or it can save the world. But at this stage, it feels like, I don't know, overall, when you sit back, do you think this was just a positive wave of emergent behavior? Is, it, is there something negative about what happened? Well, yeah, the, the cool thing is the they weren't doing anything, the, the Reddit people weren't doing anything um, exotic. It was, an, it was a creative trade, but it wasn't exotic. It wasn't, it, it was just buying the stock. Okay, right. maybe they bought some options too. But um, it was the hedge fund that was doing the exotic thing. Um, so I like that. It was, it's hard to say, well, you know, we've got together and we've put all, pooled all our money together. And now there's a company out there that's worth more. What's wrong with that? Yeah. Right. But it doesn't talk about, you know, the motivations, which is, and then we destroyed some hedge funds in the process. <laughs> is there something to be said about the, the humor and the, I don't know the edginess, sometimes viciousness of that subreddit. I haven't looked at it too much, but it feels like people can be quite aggressive on there. Uh, so is there, what is that? Is that what, is that what uh, freedom looks like? <laughs> I think it does, yeah. You definitely need to let people, The one of the things that people have com compared it to is the Occupy Wall Street, right. which is let's say, you know, some very sincere, uh, liberals, mm -hmm. like tw 23 years old, whatever, and they go out and with signs and they, they have some kind of case to make. Um, but this isn't sincere, uh, really. Um, it's like um, a little bit more nihilistic, a little bit more YOLO, um, and therefore a little bit more scary. Because who's, yeah. scared of the, who's scared of the Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street people with the signs? Right. Nobody. But yeah. these hedge funds really are scared. I was scared of the of the Wall Street bets people. I'm still scared of them. <laughs> yeah, the anonymity is a bit terrifying and exciting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I don't know what to do. It's, you know, I've been following events in Russia, for example. It's like there's a struggle between centralized power and the distributed. It's, it, I mean, that's the struggle of uh, the history of human civilization, right? But this on the internet, just that you can multiply people like some of them don't have to be real like you can probably create bots like it starts getting me me as a programmer i start to think like hmm me is one person how much chaos can can i create by writing some bots yeah and i'm sure <laughs> i'm not the only one thinking that uh there's i'm sure there's the hundreds thousands of uh good developers out there listening to this thinking the same thing and then as that develops 
further and further in the next like decade or two, what impact does that have on financial markets, on just destruction of uh, reputations, of just, or politics, you know, uh, the, the bickering of left and right political discourse, the dynamics of that being manipulated by, you know, they, people talk about like Russian bots or whatever. I, we're probably in the very early stage of that, right? This, exactly. And uh, this is a good example. So do you, have a, do you have a sense that most of Wall Street Bets folks are actually individual people? Right, that, that's the feeling I have, is they're just individual, maybe young investors, just yeah. doing a little bit of an investment, but it, just on a large scale. Yeah, exactly. The reason I found out, I've known about Wall Street Bets for a while, but the reason I found out about GameStop was this, just I met somebody at a party who told me about it, and he was like 21 years old, and he's like, it's gonna go up 100% in the next one day. Are we talking about in last year? Uh, this was something? probably, no, this was, yeah, a few days ago. Uh, oh, when okay. I, yeah, it was like maybe, um, maybe th two weeks ago or something. Um, so it was it was already high, GameStop. Um, but it was just strange to me that there was someone telling me at a party uh, how to trade stocks who was like 21 years old. Um, and uh, and I started, to, yeah, I started to look into it. And um, yeah, and he, and he did make, he made, yeah, he made 140% in one day. Uh, he was right. And now he's, um, you know, supercharged. He's a little bit wealthier. And now he's going to look, wait for the next thing. And this decentralized entity is just going to get bigger and bigger. And they're going to together search for the next thing. So there's yeah. thousands of folks like him, and they're going to probably search for the next thing to attack. People that have power in this world that sit there with power right now in government, in, in finance, in the, any kind of position are probably a little bit scared right now. And honestly, that's probably a little bit good. It's dangerous, but it's good. Yeah, it certainly makes you think twice about shorting. It certainly <laughs> yeah. makes you think twice about putting a lot of money into a short. Like the, these funds put a lot into one one or two names. And so it was very, very badly risk managed. Do you think shorting is, uh, can you speak at a high level just for your own as a person? Is it good for the world? Is it good for markets? I do think that the two kinds of shorting evil shorting <laughs> and chill shorting. Okay. Um, evil shorting is what Melvin Capital was doing. Um, uh, and it's like you put a huge position down, you get all your buddies to also short it, and you start making press and um, and trying to bring this company down. Yeah. Um, and I don't think, in some cases, there's you go out after like fraudulent companies, say, this company is a fraud Maybe that's okay. Like some, but but this they weren't even saying GameStop. They're just saying it's a bad company, and we're gonna bring it to the ground, bring it to its knees. Um, a quant fund like Numerai, we always have lots of positions, and we never have a position that's like more than one percent of our fund. So we actually have right now two hundred and fifty shorts. Um, I don't know any of them except for one. <laughs> because it was one of the meme stocks. <laughs> but um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it, we're shorting them not to make them go, we don't even want them to go down necessarily. Yeah. That, doesn't, that doesn't sound a bit strange that I say that, but we just want them to, to not go up as much as our longs. Right. So by shorting a, a little bit, we can actually go long more in the things we do believe in. So when we were going long in Tesla we could do it with more money than we had 
because we would borrow from banks who would lend us money because we had longs and shorts, because we didn't have market exposure, didn't have market risk. And so I think that's a good thing because that means, um, you know, we can short the oil companies and go long Tesla and make the future come forward faster. And I do think that's not a bad thing. So we talked about this incredible distributed system created by Wall Street Bets. And then there's a, a platform, which is Robinhood, which allows investors to efficiently, as far as you can correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, there's those and there's others and there's Numeri that allow you to make it accessible for people to invest. But uh, that said, Robinhood was uh, in a centralized way, applied its power to restrict trading on the stocks that we're referring to. Uh, do you have a thoughts on actually like all the things that happened? I don't know how much you were paying attention uh, to sort of the shadiness uh, around the whole thing. Do you think it was forced to do it? Or was there something shady going on? Did, what are your thoughts in general? Well, I think I, I want to see the alternate history. Like I want to see the counterfactual history of them not doing that. Not doing it. How bad would it have gotten for hedge funds? How much more damage could have been done if the momentum of these short squeezes could continue? Um, what happens when there are short squeezes, uh, even if um, they're in a few stocks, they affect kind of all the other shorts too. And suddenly um, brokers are saying things like, you need to put up more collateral. Mm -hmm. So we had a short. It wasn't GameStop, luckily. It was BlackBerry. And it went up like 100% in a day. It was one of these meme stocks, super bad company. The AIs don't like it, okay? It's, the AIs think it's going down. What's a meme stock? A meme stock is kind of a new term for these stocks that catch memetic momentum on uh, Reddit. Yeah. Um, and so the meme stocks were GameStop, the biggest one, GameStonk, as Elon calls it, AMC, <laughs> um, and... BlackBerry was one. Nokia was one. So these are high short interest stocks as well. So they, these are targeted stocks. That, uh, some people say, oh, isn't it, isn't it adorable that these, um, these people are investing money in these companies that are, you know, nostalgic. It's like you go into the AMC movie theater, it's like nostalgic. It's like, no, it's not why they're doing it. It's that they had a lot of short interest. That was the main thing. And so they were high chance of, of short squeeze. In saying, I would love to see an alternate history, do you have a sense that that, what is your prediction of what that history would have looked like? Well, you wouldn't have needed very many more days of that kind of chaos to right. to hurt hedge funds. Um, I think it's underrated how, how damaging it could have been. Uh, because when your shorts go up, uh, your collateral requirements for them go up, similar to Robinhood. Like we have a prime broker that says, said to us, uh, you need to put up, you know, like $40 per, per hundred dollars of short exposure. And then the next day they said, actually, you have to put up, you know, all of it, a hundred percent. And we were like, what? Um, but if that happens, that, if that happens to all the short, all the commonly held hedge fund shorts, because they're all kind of holding the same things. Mm -hmm. If that happens, not only do you have to, cover the short, which means you're buying the bad companies, mm -hmm. you need to sell your good companies in order to cover the short. Right. So suddenly, like, 
all the good companies, all the ones that the hedge funds like are coming down and all the, all the ones that the hedge funds hate are going up mm-hmm. in a cascading way. So I believe that if you could have had a few more days of G- GameStop doubling, AMC doubling, you would have had more and more hedge fund deleveraging. But so hedge funds, I mean, they get a lot of shit, but they, do you have a sense that they do some good for the world? I mean, ultimately, so, uh, okay, first of all, Wall Street Bets itself is, ca- is a kind of distributed hedge fund. Numerai is a kind of hedge fund. So like a, a hedge fund is a very broad category. I mean, like if some of those were destroyed, would that be good for the world? Or is it, is, would there be coupled with the the destroying the evil shorting? Would there be just a lot of pain in terms of investment in good companies? Yeah. A thing I like to tell people if they hate hedge funds is... I don't think you want to rerun American economic history without hedge funds. So, so on like, mass, they're they're you, they're yeah <laughs> yeah they're like good. You, yeah, you really wouldn't want to, uh, because hedge funds are kind of like picking up. Um, they're making liquidity right in stocks, and so if you let li- if you love venture capitalists, they're investing in new technology. It's so good. You have to also kind of like hedge funds because they're the reason venture capitalists exists because their companies can have a liquidity event when they go to the public markets. So it's kind of essential that we have them. There are many different kinds of them. I believe we could maybe get away with only having an AI hedge fund, mm-hmm. um, but we don't necessarily need these evil billions type hedge funds that make the media and try to kill companies, but we definitely need hedge funds. Maybe from your perspective, because you run such an organization and uh vlad the ceo of robin hood sort of had to make decisions really quickly probably had to wake up in the middle of the night kind of thing uh you know and he also had a conversation with elon musk on uh, clubhouse which i just signed up for it was it was a fascinating one of the great journalistic uh, performances of our time with uh, Elon Musk. Pull a surprise for Elon. <laughs> surprise. How hilarious would it be if he gets a pull surprise? <laughs> uh, and then his Wikipedia would be like, journalist and uh, part-time yeah. entrepreneur. Business Elon magnets. Musk. <laughs> Business magnets. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you can comment on any aspects of that, but like, if you were Vlad, how would you do things differently? What are you just thoughts about his interaction with Elon, how he should have played it differently. Like, I guess there's a lot of aspects to this interaction. One is about transparency, like how how much do you want to tell people about really what went down? There's NDAs potentially involved. Uh, how much on in private do you want to push back and say, no, fuck you to centralized power, whatever the phone calls you're getting, which I'm sure he's getting some kind of phone calls that might not be contractual. Like it's not contracts that are forcing him, but he was being, uh, what do you call it? Like pressured to behave in certain kinds of ways from all kinds of directions. Like what, uh, what do you take from uh, this whole situation? I was very excited to see Vlad's response. I mean, it's pretty cool to have him talk to Elon. Right. And one of the things that like struck me in the first like few seconds of Vlad speaking was like, I was like, is Vlad like a boomer? Like, <laughs> <laughs> like the, but hear me out. Like, he seemed like a 55-year-old man yeah. talking to a 20-year-old. Yeah. Elon was like the 20-year-old. Yeah. And he's like the 55-year-old man. Yeah. You can see why Citadel 
are NMR buddies, right? <laughs> like you can, yeah. you can see why. It's like this is a this is a nice. I'm not. It's not a bad thing. It's like he's. It's like a. He's got a, like a respectable professional attitude. Well, he he also tried to do like a jokey thing, like. Oh, no, yeah. we're not being ageist here, Boomer. Uh, but like, like a like a sixty year old CEO of Bank of America would try to make a joke for the kids. That's what Vlad said. Exactly. About. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, "What is this? This guy's like, what is he? Thirty? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, this is weird. Yeah. Um, but I think maybe that's also what I like about Elon's kind of influence on American business is like he's super like anti the professional, right? Like. Why, why say, why say, you know, a hundred words about nothing? Right. Uh, and so I liked how he was cutting in and saying, Vlad, what do you mean? Spill the beans, bro. Yeah. So you, you don't have to be courteous. It's like the first principles thinking. It's like, what the hell happened? Yes. And let's just talk like normal people. The problem, of course, is, uh, you know, for Elon, uh, he, it's cost them, what is it? Tens of millions of dollars <laughs> is tweeting like that. But perhaps it's a worthy price to pay because ultimately there's something magical about just being real and honest and just going off the cuff and making the mistakes and paying for them, but just being real. And then moments like this, that was an opportunity for Vlad to be that. And it felt like he wasn't. Uh, do you think there, do you think we'll ever find out what really went down if there was something shady underneath it all? Yeah, I mean, it. <laughs> It would be sad if nothing shady happened, right? But his presence made it shady. Sometimes I feel like that with Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO of Facebook. Sometimes I feel like, yeah, there's a lot of shady things that Facebook is doing, but sometimes I think he makes it look worse by the way he presents himself about those things. Like I, I honestly think that a large amount of people at Facebook just have a huge unstable chaotic system and they're all not all but a mass are trying to do good with this chaotic system but the presentation is like it sounds like there's a lot of uh back room conversations that are trying to manipulate people uh and there's there's something about the realness that elon has that it feels like ceos should have and vlad and had that opportunity i think mark zuckerberg had that too when he was younger younger and somebody said you got to be more professional man you can't say you know lol to an interview uh and then suddenly he became like this distant person that was hot i'd like you'd rather have him make mistakes but be honest yeah. than be like professional and never make mistakes yeah one of the difficult hires i think is like marketing people or like pr people is you have to hire people that get the fact that you can say lol on an interview <laughs> or like you know, take risks as opposed to what uh, the PR, I've talked to quite a few big CEOs and the people around them are trying to constantly minimize risk of like, what if he says the wrong thing? What if she says the wrong thing? It's like, what, like, be careful. It's constantly like, ooh, like, I don't know. And there's this nervous energy that builds up over time with larger, larger teams where the whole thing like I visited YouTube, for example. Everybody I talked at YouTube, incredible engineering, an incredible system, but everybody's scared. Like, let's be uh, let's be honest about this like madness that we have going on of 
huge amounts of video that we can't possibly ever handle. There's a bunch of hate on YouTube. There's this chaos of comments, a bunch of conspiracy theories, some of which might be true. And then and just like this mess that we're dealing with. And it's exciting. It's beautiful. Uh, it's a place where like democratizes education, all that kind of stuff. And instead they're all like sitting in like very, trying to be very polite and saying like, well, we're just uh, want to improve the health of our platforms. Like it's like this kind <laughs> yeah. of discussion, like, like, all right, man, let's just be real. Let's, let's, let's both advertise how amazing this freaking thing is, but also to say like, we don't know what we're doing. We have all these Nazis posting videos on YouTube. We don't, we don't know how to like handle it. And just being real like that, I suppose that's just a skill. Um, maybe it can't be taught, but over time, the whatever the dynamics of the company is, it does seem like Zuckerberg and others get worn down. They just get tired. Yeah, uh, they get tired of not being real. Of not being real, which is uh, sad. So let's talk about Numerai, which is an incredible company uh, system idea, I think. But good place to start. What is Numerai, and how does it work? So. Numerai is the first hedge fund that gives away all of its data. So this is like probably the last thing a hedge fund would do, right? Why would we give away a data? It's like giving away your edge. Um, but th the reason we do it is because we're looking for people to model our data. And the way we do it is by obfuscating the data. So when you get when you look at Numerai's data that you can download for free, it just looks like, like a million rows and of numbers between zero and one, and you have no idea what the columns mean. But you do know that if you're good at machine learning or have done re regressions before, you know that I can still find patterns on, in this data, even though I don't know, I don't know what the features mean. And, and the data itself is time series data. And even though it's obfuscated, anonymized, what is the source data? Like approximately, what are we talking about? So we are buying data from lots of different data vendors, um, and they would also never want us to share that data. Um, so we have strict contracts with them. So we only we only can, but it but it's the kind of data you could never buy yourself unless you had maybe a million dollars a year of budget to buy mm -hmm. data. So what's happened with the hedge fund industry is you have a lot of talented people who used to be able to trade and still can trade, but now they have such a data disadvantage, it would never make sense for them to, um, to, to, to trade themselves. Mm -hmm. But Numerai, by giving away this obfuscated data, we can give them a really, really high quality data set that's, that would otherwise be very expensive. And they can use whatever new machine learning technique they want uh, to find patterns in that data that we can use in our hedge fund. And so how much variety is there in the underlying data? We're talking about, uh, I apologize if I'm using the wrong terms, but one is just like the stock price. The other, there's like options and all that kind of stuff, like the, what are they called? Order books or whatever. Like, is is there maybe other totally unrelated to directly to the stock market data, like, like natural language as well, all that kind of stuff? Yeah, we were really focused on... Um stock data that's specific to stocks so um things like you can have like a p every stock has like a pe ratio for some stocks it's not as meaningful but every stock has that every stock has one year momentum how much they went up in the last year um but those are very common factors 
But we try to get lots and lots of those factors that we have for many, many years, like 15, 20 years history. Um, and, and then the setup of the problem is commonly in, in quant called like cross-sectional global equity. You're not really trying to say, I want, I, I believe the stock will go up. Mm-hmm. You're trying to say um, the like relative position of this stock in feature space uh, makes it not a bad buy in a, in a portfolio. So it captures some period of time and you're trying to find the patterns, the dynamics captured by the data of that period of time in order to make short-term predictions about what's going to happen. Yeah, so our predictions are also not that short. We're not really um, caring about things like order books and, 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 and tick data, uh, not high frequency at all. We're actually mm-hmm. holding things for quite a bit longer. Uh, so our prediction time horizon is about one month. We end up holding stocks for maybe like three or four months. So I kind of believe that's a little bit more like investing than um, than kind of plumbing. Like mm. to go long a stock that's mispriced on one exchange and shorter on another exchange, that's just arbitrage. Mm-hmm. But what we're trying to do is really know, know, know something more about the longer term future of the stock. Yeah, so from the patterns, from these like periods of uh, time series data, you're trying to understand something fundamental about the stock, not like d- about deep value about like with the, it's big in the context of the market is it underpriced overpriced all that kind of stuff so like this is about investing it's not about like just like you said high frequency trading which i think is a fascinating open question from a machine learning perspective but just to like sort of build on that so you've anonymized the data and now you're giving away the data and then now anyone can try to uh build algorithms that make investing decisions on top of that data or predictions on the top of that data. Exactly. And so that that's um what is it so what does that look like? What's the goal of that? What are the underlying principles of that? So the first thing is, you know, we could obviously model that data in house, right? We can make an XG boost model on the data. Um and that would be quite good too. But what we're trying to do is by by uh, opening it up and letting anybody participate, uh, we can do quite a lot better than if we modeled it ourselves. Right. And a lot better on the stock market doesn't need to be very much. Like it really matters the difference between if you can make 10 and 12% in an equity market neutral hedge fund, because the whole usually you're, char- you're charging 2% fees. So if you can do 2% better, that's like all your fees, it's worth it. So we're trying to make sure that we always have the best possible model as new machine learning libraries come out, new new techniques come out, they get automatically synthesized. Like if there's a great paper on supervised learning, mm-hmm. someone on Numerai will figure out how to use it on Numerai's data. And is there an ensemble of uh, models going on or is it always, or is it more towards kind of like one or two or three like best performing models? So the way we decide on how to weight all of the predictions together is um, by how much the users are staking on them. Oh yeah. How much of the cryptocurrency that they're putting behind their models. So they're saying, I believe in my model. Tru- you can trust me because I'm gonna put skin in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we can take the stake weighted predictions from all our users, add those together, average those together, and that's a much better model than any one model in the in the sum because ensembling a lot of models together is kind of the key thing you need to do in investing to 
yeah so you're putting so there's a kind of duality from the user from the perspective of a machine learning engineer where you're it's both a competition just a really interesting difficult machine learning problem and it's a, a way to to invest algorithmically so like you and but the the way to invest algorithmically also is a way to put skin in the game that communicates to you that you're uh the the quality of the algorithm and also forces you to really uh be serious about the models that you build so it's like everything just works nicely together like um i guess one way to say that is the interests are aligned exactly <laughs> okay so uh it's just like poker is is not not fun when it's like for very low stakes the higher the stakes the more the dynamics of the system starts playing out correctly as like as a small side note is there something you can say about which kind looking at the big broad view of machine learning today or ai what kind of algorithms seem to do good in these kinds of competitions at this time is there some universal thing you can say like neural networks suck uh <laughs> recurrent neural networks suck transformers suck or they're awesome like old school sort of more basic kind of classifiers are better all the is there is there some kind of conclusions so far that you can say there is there definitely something pretty nice about tree models uh, like like xg boost um and uh they just seem to work pretty nicely on this type of data uh so out of the box if you're trying to come a hundredth in the competition or in the tournament, maybe you would try to use that. Um, but what's what's particularly interesting about the the problem that um, not many people understand. If you're familiar with machine learning, um, this typically will surprise you when you model our data. So um, one of the things that uh, you you look at in finance is you don't want to be too exposed to any one risk. Mm -hmm. Like, even if the best sector in the world to invest in over the last 10 years was tech, you would not, does not mean you should put all of your money into tech. Right. So the, it, if you train a model, it would say, put all your money into tech. It's super good. But um, what you want to do is actually be very careful of how much of this exposure you have to certain features. So on Numerai, what a lot of people figure out is, Actually, if you train a model on this kind of data, you want to somehow neutralize or minimize your exposure to these to certain features, which is unusual because if if you did train um, a stoplight or stop street uh, detection uh, on computer vision, mm -hmm. uh, the your, your favorite feature, let's say you could and you have an autoencoder and it's figuring out, okay, it's going to be red and it's going to be white. You, you that's the last thing you want to be you want to reduce your exposure to. Mm -hmm. Why would you reduce your exposure to the thing that's helping you your model the most? And that's actually this counterintuitive thing you have to do with machine learning on financial data. So reducing it's reducing your exposure would help you generalize the things that are so basically financial data has a large amount of patterns that appeared in the past and also a large amount of patterns that have not appeared in the past. And so like in that sense, you have to reduce the exposure to red lights, uh, to, to to the color red. That's interesting. But I, uh, how much of this is art and how much of it is science from your perspective so far? 
in terms of as you start to climb from the hundredth position to the ninety fifth in, in the competition? Yeah, well, if you do, you make yourself super exposed to uh, one or two features. You can have a lot of volatility when you're playing Numerai. Mm -hmm. You could maybe very rapidly rise to be high mm -hmm. if you were getting lucky. Yes. And that's a bit like the stock market. Sure, take on massive risk exposure, put all your money into one stock, and you might make 100%. But um, it doesn't, in the long run, work out very well. And so um, the best users are, are trying to stay high for as long as possible and not, not necessarily try to be first for a little bit. So for me, a developer, machine learning researcher, how do I, Lex Friedman, participate in this competition? And how do others, which I'm sure there'll be a lot of others interested in participating in this competition? What are, uh, let's see, there's like a million questions, but like first one is, how do I get started? Well, you can go to numer.ai, sign up, download the data. And on the data is pretty small. Um, in the data pack you download, there's like an example script, Python script, that just builds a XGBoost model very quickly from the data. Uh, and um, so in a very short time, you can have an example model. Is it a particular structure? Like what, uh, is this model then submitted somewhere? So there's needs to be some kind of structure that communicates with some kind of API. Like how does the whole, Yeah. how, do, how does the, your model, once you built it, once you create a little, little baby Frankenstein, yeah. how does it then live in its in Okay, the well, we, we want you to keep your baby Frankenstein at home okay. and take care of it. We don't want it. Okay. So we, you never upload your model to us. You always um, only giving us predictions. So we never see the code that wrote your model, which is pretty cool. Yeah. That our whole hedge fund is built from models where we've never ever seen the code. Um, but it's important for the users because it's their IP. Why yeah. they want to give it to us? That's brilliant. So they've got it themselves, but they can basically almost like license the f the predictions from that model to us. <laughs> license the predictions. Yeah. Um, so think about it. What some users do is they set up a. Uh, co compute server we call Numerai Compute. It's like a little AWS kind of image. And you can automate this process. Um, so we can ping you. We can be like, we need more predictions now. And then you you send it to us. Okay, cool. So th that's, uh, is that described somewhere like what the preferred is, the AWS or whether another cloud platform? Is there, I mean, is there sort of specific technical things you want to say that comes to mind that uh, is a good path for for getting started. So download the data, maybe play around, see if uh, you can modify the basic uh, the, the algorithm provided in the um, example. And then you what set up a little server on AWS that then runs this model and takes pings and then makes predictions. And uh, so how does your own money actually come into play doing the stake uh, of um, uh, cryptocurrency? Yeah, so you don't have to stake. You can start without staking. And many users might try for months uh, without staking anything at all to see if their model works on the real life data, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and is not overfit. Um, but then uh, you can get Numerare uh, many different ways. You can buy it on... Um, 
you can buy some on Coinbase, you can buy some on Uniswap, you can buy some on Binance. Um, so what, what did you say? This is, uh, how do you pronounce it? So this is the Numerai uh, cryptocurrency. Yeah, NMR. NMR. What's, did you just say NMR? It is, it is technically called Numerare. Numerare. I like but, it. <laughs> yeah, but uh, NMR is simple. <laughs> NMR Numerare. Okay, so, and you could buy it, uh, you know, basically anywhere. Yeah, so it's a bit strange because sometimes people are like, is this like pay to play? Right. And it's like, sort it's like, a, yeah, yeah, you need to put some money down to show us you believe in your model. Right. But uh, weirdly, we're, we're not selling you the, like you can't buy the cryptocurrency from us. Right. It's like, it's also, we never, if, you're, if you do badly, um, we destroy your cryptocurrency. Okay, that's not good, right? You don't want it to be destroyed. But what's good about it is it's also not coming to us. Right. So it's not like we win when you lose or, or something. Like, like right. we're the house. Like we're definitely on the same team. Yes. You're helping us make a hedge fund that's never been done before. Yeah, so again, interests are aligned. There's no, uh, there's no tension there at all, which is, which is really fascinating. You're giving away everything and then the IP is owned by uh, sort of the, the code. You never share the code. That's fascinating. Um, so since I have you here and you said a uh, hundred, I didn't ask out of how many, so we'll just, <laughs> but if I, if I then, once you get started and you find this interesting, uh, how do you then win or do well, but also how do you potentially try to win if this is something you want to take on seriously from the machine learning perspective, not from a financial perspective? Yeah, I think um, the first of all, you want to talk to the community. People are pretty open. Uh, we give out really interesting scripts and ideas for things you might want to try. Um, and uh, but you're also going to need a lot of compute, probably. And so some of the best users are are you know, actually the very first time someone won on Numerai, I would I wrote them a personal email. It's like you know you've won some money. We're so excited to give you three hundred dollars. And then they said, I spend way more on the compute. <laughs> um, but you so this is fundamentally a machine learning problem first, I think. is This is one of the exciting things. I don't know if we'll, in how many ways we can approach this, but really this is less about kind of, no offense, but like finance people, finance-minded people. They're also, I'm sure, great people. But it feels like from the community that I've experienced, these are people who see... Finance is a fascinating uh, problem space, da source of data, but ultimately they're machine learning people or AI people, which is a very different kind of flavor of community. And um, I mean, I, I should say to that, uh, I'd, lo I'd love to participate in this and I will participate in this. And I'd love to hear from other people, if you're listening to this, if you're a machine learning person, you should participate in it and tell me, uh, give me some hints um, how I can uh, do well at this thing. Because this boomer, uh, I'm not sure I still got it. But because <laughs> some of it is, uh, it's like uh, Kaggle competitions, like some of it is certainly set of ideas, like research ideas, you know, like fundamental innovation. But I'm sure some of it is like deeply understanding, getting like an intuition about the data. And then like a lot of it will be like figuring out like what works, like tricks. I mean, you could, you could argue most of deep learning research is just tricks on top of tricks, but there's uh, there's some of it is just the art of getting to know how to work on a really difficult machine learning problem. 
And I think what's important, the important difference with something like a Kaggle competition, where they'll set up this kind of toy problem, and then there will be an out-of-sample test, like, hey, you did well out-of-sample, and this is like, okay, cool. Um, but what's cool with Nimura is you're, you're, the out-of-sample is the real-life stock market. Mm-hmm. We, we don't even know. Like, we don't know the answer to the problem. Yeah. We don't, like, you'll have to find out live. And so we've had users who've, who've like submitted every week for, for like four years um, because it's kind of a, inter- it's a it, we say it's the hardest data science problem on the planet, right? And it sounds, maybe sounds like maybe a bit too much for like a marketing thing, but it's the hardest because it's the stock market. Yeah. It's like literally there are like billions of dollars at stake and like no one's like letting it be inefficient on purpose. So if you can find something that works on Numerai, you really have something that that is like working on the real stock market. Yeah, because there's like humans involved in the stock market. I mean, it's, uh, you know, you could argue there might be harder data sets like maybe predicting the weather, all those kinds of things. But the the fundamental statement here is, which I like, I was thinking like, is this really the hardest data science problem? And you, you start thinking about that, but ultimately it also boils down to a problem where the data is accessible it's made accessible, made really easy and efficient at like submitting algorithms. So it's not just, you know, it's not about the data being out there, like the weather. It's about making the data super accessible, making the ability a community around it. Like this is what ImageNet did. Exactly. Uh, like it's not just, there's always images. The point is you aggregate them together, you give it a little title, there's a community. And that's, that was, one of the hardest, right, for a time, uh, and most important data science problems in, in the world, uh, because it was accessible, because it was uh, made uh, sort of like there was uh, mechanisms by which, like standards and mechanisms by which to judge your performance, all those kinds of things. And numerize, actually, I step up from that. Is there something more you can say about why, from your perspective, it's the hardest? Uh, problem in the world. I mean, you said it's connected to the market. So if you can find a pattern in the market, that's a really difficult thing to do because a lot of people are trying to do it. Exactly. But there's also the the biggest one is it's, it's non-stationary time series. We've tried to regularize the data so you can find patterns uh, by by doing certain things to the features and the target. But ultimately, you're in a space where you don't there's no guarantees that the out of sample distributions will uh, conform to any of the training data and and every single um, era which we call on the website like every single era in the data which is like sort of showing you the order of the time um, it's it's even the training data is has these same same dislocations and um, so yeah, it's and so it's, and then there's you yeah there's so many things that might um might you might want to try this this like there's unlimited possible number of models right mm-hmm. um and so w- by by having it um, be open uh, we can at least search that space. Zooming back out to the philosophical, you said that Numerai is uh, very much like Wall Street bets. Uh, is is there I, I think it'd be interesting to dig in why you think so. I think you're speaking to the distributed nature of the two and the, the power of the people, 
nature of the two. And so maybe can you speak to the similarities and the differences and in which way is Numerai more powerful? In which way is Wall Street Bets more powerful? Yeah, this is why the Wall Street Bets story is so interesting to me because it's like feels like connected. Yeah. Um, and looking at how, just looking at the forum of Wall Street Bets, it's, I was t- talking earlier about how, how can you make cl- credible claims? You're anonymous. Okay, well, maybe you can take a screenshot. How, how, or maybe you can upvote someone. Maybe you can have karma on Reddit. And those kinds of things make this emerging thing possible. Mm-hmm. Numerai, it didn't work at all when we started. It didn't work at all. Why? People made multiple accounts. They made really random models and hoped they would get lucky. And some of them did. Yes. Staking was our like solution to could we could we make it so that we could trust we could know which model people believed in the most and we could weight models that had high stake more and effectively coordinate this group of people to be like well actually there's no incentive to creating bot accounts anymore mm-hmm. either i stake my accounts in which case i should believe in them because i could lose my stake or i don't and that's a very powerful thing uh that Having a negative incentive and a positive incentive can make can make things a lot better. And staking is like this is this really nice like key thing about blockchains. It's like something special you can do where they're not even trusting us with their stake in some ways. They're trusting the blockchain, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the incentives, like you say, it's about making these perfect incentives so that you can have coordination to solve one problem. And nowadays, I. I sleep easy because I have less money in my own hedge fund than our users are staking (laughs) on their models. That's powerful. In some sense, from a human psychology perspective, it's fascinating that the Wall Street bets worked at all, right? That amidst that chaos emerging behavior, uh, like behavior that made sense emerged. It would be fascinating to think if numerized style uh, staking could then be transferred to places like Reddit, you know, and and not necessarily yeah. for financial investments, but uh, like I wish sometimes people w- would, you know, would have to stake something in the comments they make on the internet. Yeah, <laughs> like that's that's the problem with anonymity is like anonymity is freedom and power that you don't have to you can speak your mind but it's too easy to just be shitty. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So this, I mean, you're making me realize from like a profoundly philosophical aspect, numerized staking is a really clean way to solve this problem. It's it's a really beautiful way. Of course, it only with numeri currently works for a very particular problem, right? Not for human interaction on the internet, but, but that's fascinating. Yeah, there's nothing for to stop people. In fact, we've open sourced like the code we use for staking in a protocol we call Erasure. Um, and any if Reddit wanted to, they could even use that code to do have, have enable staking on um, our Wall Street bets. And they're actually researching now. They've had some Ethereum grants on how could they have more crypto stuff in their in Ethereum, because wouldn't that be interesting? Like, imagine you could, um, instead of seeing a screenshot, like, guys, I promise, I will not uh, sell my GameStop. We're just going to go huge. We're not going to sell at all. Um, And here is a smart contract 
which no one in the world, including me, can undo. That says my I have staked uh, millions against this claim. Um, That's powerful. And then what could you do? And of course, it doesn't have to be millions. It could be just a very small amount, but then just a huge number of users doing that kind of stake. Exactly. <laughs> that you know that could change the internet. <laughs> it would change and the man Wall Street. It, it would. They Street. would not. They would never have been able to. They would still be short squeezing, one day after the next. Every single hedge fund collapsing. If we look into the future, do you think it's possible that Numerai style infrastructure, where AI systems backed by humans are doing the trading is what the entirety of the the stock market is or the entirety of the economy is run by basically this army of AI systems with high level human supervision. Yeah, the thing is that some of them could be could be bad actors. Um, some of the humans? No, well, in, these systems could be tricky. So right. actually, I once met a hedge fund manager. This is kind of interesting. He said, um, very famous one, and he said... Um, we can see, sometimes we can see things in the market where we know we can make money, but it will mess shit up. Yeah. We know we can make money, but it will mess things up. And we choose not to do those things. And on the one hand, maybe this is like, oh, you're being super arrogant. Like, yeah. you know, of course you, can, you can't do this, but maybe he can. And maybe he really isn't doing things he knows he could do, but would change, you know, be pretty bad. Would the Reddit army have that kind of uh, morality or concern uh, for what they're doing? Probably yeah. not, based on what the, we've seen. The madness of crowds. There'll be like one person that says, hey, maybe, and then they get trampled over. <laughs> uh, that's that's the terrifying thing, actually. This uh, my, A lot of people have written about this, is somehow that like little voice that's, human morality gets silenced when we get in the groups and start chanting. Yeah. <laughs> and that's terrifying. But like, I, I think uh, maybe I misunderstood. I thought that um, you're saying AI systems can be dangerous, but you just described how humans can be dangerous. So, so which is safer? <laughs> so, I mean, one thing is uh, numerai. Yeah. So Wall Street bets, these kinds of like, these kinds of attacks, like it's not possible to, to model numerized data and then come up with the idea from the model, let short squeeze GameStop. Right. It's not even framed in that way. It's not like possible to have that idea. So, but it is possible for like kind of a bunch of humans. So I think there's, it's, Numerai could get very powerful uh, without it being dangerous. But Wall Street bets needs to get a little bit more powerful and it'll be pretty dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, uh, so this is a good, place to kind of think about numerai data today uh numerai signals and what that looks like in 10 20 30 50 100 years you know like right now i guess maybe you can correct me but this the data that we're working with is like a window it's a, a you know anonymized obfuscated window into a particular aspect uh time period of the market and you know, you can expand that more and more and more and more potentially. You can imagine in different dimensions to where it encapsulates all the things that, uh, where you could uh, include kind of human to human communication 
that was available for like uh, to buy GameStop, for example, on on Wall Street bets. So maybe to step back, can you speak to what is Numerai Signals and uh, what are the different data sets that are involved? So with Numerai Signals, um, you're still providing uh, predictions to us, um, but you can do it from your own data sets. So Numerite's all, you have to model our data to come up with predictions. Numerite signals is whatever data you can find out there, you can turn it into a signal and give it to us. So it's a way for us to import signals on data we don't yet have. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's why it's particularly valuable because it's going to be signals, you're only rewarded for signals that are orthogonal to our core signal. So you have to be doing something uncorrelated. And so strange alternative data tends to have that property. Mm -hmm. There isn't too many other signals that are correlated with, um, with uh, you know, what's happening on Wall Street bets. That's not going to be like correlated with the price to earnings ratio, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we have some users as of recently, as of like a week ago, there was a user that created, I think he's in India, he created um, a signal that is scraped from Wall Street bets. Um, and now we have that signal uh, as one of our signals in thousands that we use at Numerai. And the structure of the signal is similar, so it's just numbers and time series data? It's exactly, and it, it's just like, it's kind of a, you're providing a ranking of stocks. So you just say, give it a, a one means you like the stock, zero means you don't like the stock, and you provide that for 5,000 stocks in the world. And they somehow converted the the natural language that's in the Wall Street. Exactly. So they've come exactly. So there's they, and they made they open source this collab notebook. Uh, you can go and see it and look. <laughs> that's at, so cool. And so yeah, it's taking that making a sentiment score and then turning it into a rank a of stocks. Sentiment score. Yeah. Uh like this stock sucks or this stock is awesome. Uh, and then converting <laughs> that's that's fast. Just even looking at that data would be fascinating. So on the signal side, what's the vision? It's long-term, what do you see that becoming? So we want to manage all the money in the world. That's Numerai's mission. And to get that, we need to have all the data and have all of the talent. Like there's no way, so first principles, if you had really good modeling and really good data that you would lose, right? Um, it's just a question of how much do you need to get, to get really good. So Numerai already has some really nice data that we give out. This year, we are 10xing that. And I actually think we'll 10x the amount of data we have on Numerai every year for at least the next 10 years. Wow. So it's going to get very big, the data we give out. And signals is more data. People with any other random data set can turn that into a signal and give it to us. And in some sense, that kind of data is the edge cases, the weirdness is the, so you're focused on like the bulk, yeah. like the main data. And then there's just like weirdness from all over the place that just can enter through this back door. Of exactly. <laughs> exactly. And the, it's, it's also um, a little bit shorter term. So right. the signals are set about a seven day time horizon and the on Numerai, it's like a 30 day. So it's often for faster situations. You've written about a master plan, and you've mentioned, which I love, uh, in a similar sort of style of big style thinking, you would like Numerai to manage all of the world's money. 
Uh, so how do we get there from, from yesterday to several years from now? Like what's, uh, what is the plan? So you've already started to, to alert to it. like get all the data and get it. Uh, yeah. All the talent, yeah. humans, models. Exactly. I mean, the important thing to note there is what would that mean? Right. And I, I think the biggest thing it means is like, uh, if there was one hedge fund, um, you would have uh, not so much talent wasted on all the other hedge funds. Like it's super weird how yeah. the industry works. It's like one hedge fund gets a data source and hires a PhD and another hedge fund has to buy the same data source and hire a PhD. And suddenly a third of American PhDs are working at hedge funds yeah. and we're not even on Mars. <laughs> and like, so in some ways, Numerai, it's all about freeing up people who work at hedge funds to go work for Elon. <laughs> yeah, and and also the people who are working at, on Numerai problem, it feels like a lot of the knowledge there is also transferable to other domains. Exactly. It's it, our top it's, one of our top users is uh, he works at NASA Jet Propulsion Lab. Yeah, and he's he's like amazing. I went to go visit him there, and it's like he's got like Numerai posters, and he's like it's it's like it looks like you know the movies, like it looks like Apollo Eleven or whatever. Yeah, the the point is. He didn't quit his job to join full time. He's working on getting us to Jupiter's moon. That's his mission, the Europa Clipper mission. Actually, literally what you're saying. Literally. We, he's smart enough that we really want his intelligence to reach the stock market. Because the stock market's a good thing. Hedge funds are a good thing. All kinds of hedge funds, especially. But we don't want him to quit his job. So he can just do Numerai on the weekends. And that's what he does. He just made a model and it just automatically submits to us. And he's like one of our best users. You mentioned briefly that stock markets are good. From my sort of outsider perspective, is there a sense, do you think trading stocks is uh, closer to gambling or is it closer to investing? Sometimes it feels like it's gambling. Uh, as opposed to betting on companies to succeed. And this is maybe connected to our discussion of shorting in general, but like from your sense, the way you think about it, is it fundamentally still investing? I do think, um, I mean, it's a good question. I, it's, I've, I've also seen lately, like people say, oh, this is like speculation. Is there too much speculation in the market? And it's like, yeah. but all the trades are speculative. Like right. all the trades have a horizon, like people want them to work. Um, uh, so I, I, I would say that, um, and there's certainly a lot of aspects of gambling, uh, math that applies to investing. Right. Like yeah. one thing you don't do in gambling is put all your money in one bet. You have bankroll management and it's a key part of it. And small alterations to your bankroll management might be better than improvements to your skill. Um, so there, and then there are things we care about in our fund. Like we want to make a lot of independent bets. Mm -hmm. We talk about it. Like we're, we want to make a lot of independent bets because there, that's going to be um, a higher sharp than if you have a lot of bets that depend on each other, like all in one sector. Um, but but yeah, I mean the point the the point is that you want the prices of the stocks to be to be reflective of of how. Of their value. Of the underlying value. Yeah, like, company the, yeah, you shouldn't have there be like a, f a hedge fund that's able to say, well, um, I've looked at some data and 
all of this stuff super mispriced. Like okay. that's super bad for society if it's if it looks like that to someone. I, I guess the the underlying question then is, uh, do you see that the market often like drifts away from the underlying value of companies and it becomes a game in itself? Like would these whatever they're called, like derivatives, like the option, like you know, um, options and uh, shorting and all that kind of stuff. It's like layers of game on top of the actual, like what you said, which is like the basic thing that the Wall Street Bets was doing, which is like just buying stocks. Yeah, there are a lot of uh, games that people play that are um, in the derivatives market. And I think a lot of the stuff people dislike when they look at the history of, of what's happened, they hate like credit default swaps or collateralized debt obligations. Like these are the these are the kind of like enemies of 2008. And then the long-term capital management thing, it was like, it was like that 30 times leverage or, so, or something just that no one, like you could just go to um, a gas station and ask anybody at the gas station, is it a good idea to have 30 times leverage? And they just say, no. Mm-hmm. It's like common sense just like went out the window. So the... I, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, I don't respect long-term capital management. Uh, <laughs> okay, but Numerai doesn't actually use any derivatives unless you call shorting a derivative. Mm. Uh, we just we do put money into companies. We and the, that does help the companies we're investing in. It's just in little ways. Um, we we really did buy Tesla, mm. and it and it did, and we were you know, we were not um, we pay, played some role in in that's its success super small <laughs> make no mistake but still i think that's important can i ask you a uh, a pothead question which is uh what is money man <laughs> so if we just kind of zoom out and look at because uh, i'd love to talk to you about cryptocurrency which perhaps could be the future of money in general how do you think about money you said numerai the the vision the goal is to to run to manage the world's money, what is money in your view? I don't have a, a good answer to that, but it's definitely in my personal life, it's become more and more uh, warped. Um, and you start to care about the real thing, like what's really going on here. Um, Elon has a, talks about things like this, like what's, what is a company really? And it's like, it's a bunch of people who like kind of show up to work together and like mm-hmm. they, they solve a problem and they might not be a stock out there that, that that's trading that represents that what they're doing, but it's, it's not the real thing. Um, and being involved in crypto, um, like I, I early put in crowd sale of, of Ethereum and, uh, and all these other things and, and different crypto hedge funds and things that I've invested in. And it's like, it's just, it's just kind of like, it feels like how I used to think about money stuff is just, it's just like totally warped. Um, because you, yeah, you kind of, you stop caring about like the, the, the price and you care about like the product. So, but, but, but the product, you mean like the different mechanisms that money is exchanged? I mean, money is ultimately a kind of little, uh, you know, one is a store of wealth, but it's it's also a mechanism of exchanging wealth. But that, like, what what wealth means becomes a totally different thing, especially with uh, cryptocurrency, to where 
it's almost like these little contracts, these little agreements, these transactions between human beings that represent something that's bigger than just like cash being exchanged at 7-Eleven, it feels like. Yeah, maybe I'll answer what is finance. Uh, like you, it's what are you doing when you can, when you have the ability to, to take out a loan? You can bring uh, a whole new future into being with finance. Uh, if you couldn't get a student loan to get a college degree, you couldn't get a college degree, like if you didn't have the money. But now, like, weirdly, you can get it with, and like, yeah, all, all you have is this like loan, which is like, so now you can bring, you can bring a different future into the world. And that's how I, when I was saying earlier about if you rerun American history, economic history without these, these, these things, like you're not allowed to take out loans, you're not allowed to have, have derivatives, you're not allowed to have money. Um, it would just, it just doesn't really work. And it's mm -hmm. a really magic thing. How, how, how much you can do with finance, by kind of bringing the future forward. Finance is empowering. It's uh, we sometimes forget this, but yeah, it enables innovation. It enables big risk takers and bold builders that ultimately make this world better. Uh, you said you were early in on cryptocurrency. Can you give your high level overview of just your thoughts about the past, present, and future of cryptocurrency? Um, yeah. So my friends told me about Bitcoin, and I I was interested in um equities a lot and i was like well it has no net present uh, value it has no future cash flows bitcoin pays no dividends um so i really couldn't get my head around it uh, like that this could be valuable um and then i but i did so i, I didn't feel like i was early in cryptocurrency in fact because i was like it was like 2014 it felt like a long time after bitcoin um and then, but then I, I, I really liked some of the things that uh, Ethereum was doing. It seemed like a super visionary thing. Like I was reading something that was, um, that was just going to change the world when I was reading the white paper. Um, and I liked the different constructs you could have inside of Ethereum that you couldn't have on, on Bitcoin. Like smart contracts and all that kind of exactly. stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And, and even the, they were, yeah, even spoke about different, uh, yeah, different constructions you could have. Yeah, that's a cool dance between Bitcoin and Ethereum. Of It's in the space of ideas. It feels so young. Like, I wonder what cryptocurrencies will look like in the future. Like, if Bitcoin or Ethereum 2.0 or some version will stick around or any of those. Like, who's going to win out or if there's even a concept of winning out at all. Is there uh, a cryptocurrency that you're especially find interesting that uh, technically, financially, philosophically, you think is, is uh, something you're keeping your eye on? Well, I don't really, I'm not looking to like invest in cryptocurrencies anymore. Um, but I, I, they are, I mean, the, they're, and many are almost identical. I mean, there's not, there wasn't too much difference um, between even Ethereum and Bitcoin in, in some ways, right? Uh, but there are some that I like the privacy ones. I mean, it's like, I like Zcash for it's like coolness. It's actually, um, it's, it's like a different kind of invention compared to some of the other things. Okay. Can you speak to just briefly to privacy? What is there some mechanisms of preserving some privacy of the, so uh, I guess everything is public. Yeah. Is that the uh, problem? The, yeah, none of the transactions are private. Yeah. Um, and so 
you know, even like <laughs> I have some of my, I have some numeraire and you can just see it. In fact, you can go to a website and says like, you can go to like Etherscan and it'll say like numerai founder. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm like, how the hell do you guys know this? <laughs> <laughs> so they can reverse engineer whatever that's called. Yeah. And so they can see me data. move it too. They can see me. Oh, why is he moving it? Yeah. Um, so, uh, so, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Zcash, they, they also, when you can make private transactions, you can also play different games. Yes. Um, and it's unclear. It's like, what's quite cool about Zcash is I wonder what games are being played there. <laughs> no one will know. Uh, so from a, from a deeply analytical perspective, uh, can you describe why Dogecoin is going to win? Which it surely will. Like it, it very likely will take over the world. And once we expand out into the universe, we'll take over the universe. Uh, or on a more serious note, like what are your thoughts on the recent success of Dogecoin where you've spoken to sort of the, the meme stocks, the memetics of the whole thing, that it feels like the joke can become the reality like the the meme, the joke has power in this world. Yeah, it's fascinating. Exactly. <laughs> it's uh, it's it's like, why is it correlated with Elon tweeting about it? It's not just Elon alone tweeting, right? It's like Elon tweeting, and that becomes a catalyst for everybody on the internet, kind of like spreading the joke right exactly the joke of it so it's 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 the the initial spark of the fire for wall street bets type of situation yeah and that's fascinating because jokes seem to spread faster than other mechanisms like yeah. funny shit is very effective at uh captivating the uh like the discourse on the internet <laughs> yeah and i think you can have um like the i like the one meme like Doge, I haven't heard that name in a long time. <laughs> yeah. Um, like I think back to that meme often. That's like funny. Yeah. And every time I think back to it, there's a little probability that I might buy, buy some Doge kind. Right. Yeah. And so I imagine you just have millions of people who have had all these great jokes told them. <laughs> And every now and then they reminisce. Oh, that was uh, that was really funny. And then they're like, uh, "Let me buy some." <laughs> uh, wouldn't that be interesting if, like, the entire if, if we travel in time, like multiple centuries, where the entirety of the communication of the human species is like humor, <laughs> like it's all just jokes. Like we're high on probably some really advanced drugs, <laughs> and we're all just laughing nonstop. It's some weird like dystopian future of just humor. Elon has made me realize uh, how like good it feels to just not take shit seriously every once in a while and just relieve like the pressure of the world. At the same time, the reason I don't always like when people finish their sentences with lol is like that you don't, when you don't take anything seriously, when everything becomes a joke, then it feels like uh, that way of thinking feels like it will destroy the world. It's like, I, I often think of like, will memes save the world or destroy? Because I think both are possible directions. Yeah, I think this is a big problem. I mean, America, I always felt that about America, a lot of people are telling jokes kind of all the time mm -hmm. and they're kind of good at it. Um, and you take someone aside 
an American, you're like, I really want to have a sincere conversation. Right, <laughs> it's right. like hard to even keep a straight face. Yeah. Because um, everything is so, there's so much levity. Well, so it's complicated. I like how sincere actually like your Twitter can be. Mm-hmm. You're like, I am in love with the world today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I get so much shit for it. It's hilarious. <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm never going to stop because I, I realize like, like you have to be able to sometimes just be real and be positive and just be uh, say the cliche things, which ultimately those things actually capture some fundamental truths about life. Yeah, but it's it's a dance, and uh, I think Elon does a a good job of that uh, from an engineering perspective of being able to joke, but everyone's you know what, what mostly to pull back and be like, here's real problems, let's solve them. And so on, and then be able to jump back to a joke. So it's uh, it's ultimately, I think, I, I guess, a skill that we uh, have to learn. I, uh, but I guess your advice is to invest everything uh, anyone listening owns into Dogecoin. That's what I heard from this yeah, interaction. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, no, our hedge fund is unavailable. Uh, just go straight to Dogecoin. You're running a successful company. It's just interesting because. My mind has been in that space of uh, potentially just being one of the millions other entrepreneurs. Uh, what's your advice on uh, how to build a successful startup, how to build a successful company? I think that one thing I, I do like, and it might be a particular thing about America, but like there is something about like playing, tell people what you really want to happen in the world. Mm-hmm. Like don't stop. It It's not... It's not going to make it um, like if you're asking someone to invest in your company, don't say, I think uh, maybe one day we might make a million dollars. When you actually believe something else, you actually believe you're actually more optimistic, but you're toning down your optimism Mm -hmm. because you want to appear like low risk. Mm -hmm. But actually, it's super high risk if your company becomes mediocre. Mm -hmm. Because no one wants to work in a mediocre company. No one wants to invest in a mediocre right. company. Um, so you should play the real game. Um, and obviously, this doesn't apply to all businesses. But if you play a venture-backed startup kind of game, like play for keeps, play to win, go big. Um, and it's very hard to do that. I've always feel like, um, I yeah, I start. you can start narrowing, narrowing your focus because 10 people are telling you, you know, you got to care about this boring thing that won't matter five years from now right. and you should push back and do the real play the real game so be bold so both i mean there's a there's an interesting duality there so there's w- the way you speak to other people about like your plans and what you are like privately just in in your own mind and maybe it's connected with what you're saying about yeah sincerity as well like right. if you if you appear to be sincerely optimistic about something that's big or crazy, it it's putting yourself up to be kind of like ridiculed or something. Yes. And so if you say, my mission my mission is to um yeah go to Mars. It's just so bonkers that uh, it's hard to say. It is, but uh, uh, one powerful thing, just like you said, uh, is if you say it and you believe it then actually amazing people uh, come and work with you. Exactly. It's not just skill, but the the dreams. There's something about optimism that, uh, that, like that fire that you have when you're optimistic of actually having the hope of building something totally cool, something totally new. 
that when those people get in a room together, like they can actually do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. There, there's, yeah, there's, that's, uh, and also makes life really fun when you're in that room. So all, all of that together, uh, ultimately, I don't know. That's what makes this crazy ride of a startup really uh, look fun. And Elon is an example of a person who succeeded at that. There's not many other inspiring figures, which is sad. Uh, I used to be a Google and there's, um, there's something that happens that sometimes when the company grows bigger and bigger and bigger, where that kind of ambition kind of quiets down a little bit. Yeah. You know, Google had this ambition still does of making the world's information accessible to everyone. And I remember, I don't know, that's beautiful. <laughs> I I still love that dream of that, you know, they used to scan books, but just yeah. in every way possible, make the world's information accessible. Same with Wikipedia. Every time I open up Wikipedia, um, I'm just awe-inspired by how awesome humans are, man, <laughs> at creating this together. I don't know what the meetings are over there, but it, they it's just beautiful. Like what they've created is is incredible. And I'd love to be able to be part of something like that. And, and you're right, for that, you have to be bold. And there's, and strange to me also, I think you're right that there's how many boring companies there are. Right. Something I always talk about, especially in fintech, it's like, why am I excited about this? This is yeah. so lame. Like, what is, this isn't even a, like important. Even if you <laughs> succeed, this is going to be like t terrible. Like, yeah. this is not good. Um, and it's just strange how people can kind of get fake enthusiastic about like boring ideas yeah. when there's so many bigger ideas that, um, yeah, I mean, you read these things like this company raises money and it's just like, that's a lot of money for the worst idea I've ever heard. <laughs> Some ideas are uh, really big. So like I, I worked on autonomous vehicles quite a bit and there's so many ways in which you can present that idea to yourself, to the team you work with, to just, yeah, like to yourself when you're quietly looking in the mirror in the morning, uh, that's really boring or really exciting. Like if you're really ambitious with autonomous vehicles, there it, it changes the nature of like human robot interaction. It's changes the nature of how we move. Forget money, forget all that stuff. It, it changes like everything about robotics and AI, machine learning, it changes everything about manufacturing. I mean, the cars, the transportation is so fundamentally connected to cars. And if that changes, it, you're changing the fabric of society, of movies, of everything. Uh, and if you go bold and take risks and go be willing to go bankrupt <laughs> with your company, uh, as opposed to cautiously, you could, you could really change the world. And it's so sad for me to see all these autonomous companies, autonomous vehicle companies, they're like really more focused about fundraising and kind of like smoke and mirrors. They're really afraid. They're, the, the, the entirety of their marketing is grounded in fear yeah. and presenting enough smoke to where they keep raising funds so they can cautiously use technology of a previous decade or previous two decades to kind of test vehicles here and there, as opposed to do crazy things and bold and go huge at scale, do huge data collection. I mean, um, yeah, so that's just an example. Like the idea can be big, but if you don't allow yourself to take that idea and think really big with it, uh, then you're not gonna make anything happen. Yeah, you're absolutely right in, in that. So you, you've you been connected in, in your work uh, with a bunch of amazing people. 
How much interaction do you have with invest with investors? Like uh, that whole process is an entire mystery to me. Is there some people that just have influence on the trajectory of your thinking com completely, or is it just this collective energy that they behind the company? Yeah, I mean, I I came here and I I I was amazed how yeah people would. I was only here for a few months and I met some incredible investors, uh, and I'd almost run out of money and. Uh, once they invested, I was like, I am not going to let you down. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, I'm going to send them like an email update every like three minutes. Yeah. And then they don't care at all. Yeah. So they kind of want to, I don't know. Like, so for some, I like it when it's just like, they're always available to talk. But um, a lot of building a business, especially a high tech business, um, there's little for them to add, right? There's little for them to add on product. There's a lot for them to add on like business development. Mm. And if we are doing product research, which is for us research into the market, research into how to make a great hedge fund, and we do that for years, there's not much to to tell the investors. So they're basically is like, I believe in you. There's something, I like the cut of your jib. I, <laughs> there's something in, in your idea, in your ambition, in your plans that I like. And it's almost like a pat on the back. It's like, go go get them, kid. Yeah, it is a bit like that. Uh, and that's cool. Uh, that's a good way to do it. I'm glad they do it that way. Um, like the one meeting I had, which was like really good with this, was meeting Howard Morgan, uh, who's a, actually a co-founder of Renaissance Technologies in the like 1980s mm -hmm. and worked with Jim Simons. And um, he, he, he was in the room and I was meeting some other guy and he was in the room and I was explaining uh, how quantitative finance works. I was like, so, you know, they, they, they use mathematical models. And then he was like, I, yeah, I, I started Renaissance. I, I know a bit about this. <laughs> and then I was like, oh my God. Um, so, yeah. But then, and then I think he kind of said, well, yeah, he said, well, because I was talking, he was working at first round capital as a partner and they kind of said they didn't want to invest. Um, and then I wrote a blog post describing the idea. And I was like, I really think you guys should invest. And then they end up. Oh, interesting. You convinced them. Oh, that, that must yeah, be good. Yeah, they're like, we don't really invest in hedge funds. And I was like, yeah. you don't see like what I'm doing. This, this is, is something so a different. tech company, not a hedge fund, right? Yeah, yeah Numerai is brilliant. It, it's when it ca caught my eye, there's something special there. So I, I really do hope you succeed in the, obviously it's a risky thing you're taking on, the ambition of it, the size of it, but I do hope you succeed. You mentioned Jim Simons, um, he comes up in another world of mine really often on, on the, he's just a brilliant guy uh, uh, on the mathematics side as a mathematician, but he's also a brilliant finance hedge fund manager guy. Um, have you gotten a chance to interact with him at all? Have you learned anything from him uh, on the math, on the finance, on the philosophy, life side of things? Um, I've played poker with him. It was pretty cool. It yeah. was like, um, actually in the show Billions, they kind of do a little thing about this poker tournament thing yeah. with all the hedge fund managers. And that's a real life thing. Uh, um, and they have a lot of like World Series of bracelet, World Series of Poker bracelet holders. But it's kind of Jim's thing. Um, and um, I met him there. And uh, yeah, it was kind of brief, but I was just like, he's like, oh, how do you, why, why are you here? And I was like, oh, Howard sent me, you know, he's like, go, go play this tournament, meet some of the other players. And then. Um, 
Was it Texas Hold'em? Yeah, that? Texas Hold'em tournament, yeah. Like, do you play poker yourself or was it... Uh, yeah, I do. I mean, it was crazy. Uh, the, the, on my right was the CEO, who's the current CEO of Renaissance, mm -hmm. Peter Brown. Um, and Peter Muller, who's a hedge fund manager at PDT. Uh, and yeah, I mean, it was just like, and then, you know, just everyone. And then all these brace World Series, like people mm -hmm. I know from like TV. Um, and Robert Mercer, who's fucking crazy. Uh, he, <laughs> who's that? Who, he's the guy who, who, who donated the most money to Trump. Um, <laughs> and he's just like, it's a lot of personality character. Man. Yeah. Jeez. It's crazy. <laughs> um, so it's quite cool how, yeah, like the, it was really fun. And then, um, I managed to knock out Peter Muller. I have a, uh, I got a little trophy for knocking him out because he was a previous champion. In fact, I think he's won the most. I think he's won three times. Super smart guy. Um, but, uh, but, but I will say Jim outlasted me in the tournament. <laughs> um, and they're all extremely good at poker. Yeah. Um, but they're also, so it was a $10,000 buy-in. Um, and I was like, this is kind of expensive. Uh, but it all goes to charity, Jim's math charity. Mm -hmm. But then the way they play, they have like rebuys. And like, they all do a shit ton of rebuys. This is for charity. <laughs> yeah. So... Um, immediately they're like going all in and i'm like man like so i end up you know adding more as well uh so the stakes <laughs> so like you couldn't play at all without doing that yeah the stakes are high so, but you're you're connected to a lot of these folks that are kind of titans of just uh, uh of economics and tech in general do you feel a burden from this you're a young guy i did feel a bit out of uh, place there like um the company was quite new and um, they also don't speak about things, right? So it's not not like going to meet a uh, famous rocket engineer who will tell you how to make a rocket. Mm. They do not want to tell you anything about how to make a hedge fund. It's like all secretive. And that part I didn't like. Um, and they were also kind of making fun of me a little bit. Like they would say, uh, like they'd call me like, I don't know, the Bitcoin kid or, yeah, yeah, yeah. um, and then they would say even things like, uh, remember Peter, yeah, said to me something like, I don't think AI is going to have a big, um, role in finance. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was like, hearing this from the CEO of Renaissance was like weird to yeah. hear because I was like, of course it will. And he's like, but it, but he can see, he's like, I can see it having a really big impact on things like self-driving cars. Right. But finance, it's too noisy and whatever. And so I don't think it's like the perfect application. And I was like, that was interesting to hear because it's like, and that I think it was that same day that um, Li Libra, I think it is, hmm. the poker playing AI started to beat like the humans. Yeah. So it was kind of funny hearing them like say, oh, I'm not sure AI could ever get, attack that problem. Yes. And then that very day is attacking the problem of the game we're playing. <laughs> well, there's a kind of a magic, magic to... Um somebody who's exceptionally successful looking at you giving you respect but also saying that what you're doing is not going to succeed in a sense like they're not really saying it but i tend to believe from my interactions with people that it's a kind of prod to say like prove me wrong yeah that's ultimately that's that's how those guys talk they they see good talent and they're like I'm <laughs> yeah and i think they're also saying it's not going to succeed quickly in Quickly. some way yeah. they're like this is going to take a long time um 
and maybe maybe that's good to know mm-hmm. and certainly ai in in trading that's one of the most so uh philosophically interesting questions about artificial intelligence and the nature of money because it's like how much can you extract in terms of patterns from all of these millions of humans interacting using this methodology of money it's like one of the open questions in artificial intelligence in that sense you converting it to a data set is one of like the biggest gifts to uh the research community to the whole anyone who loves exactly. data science and ai this is uh this is kind of fascinating. I'd, I'd love to see where this goes, actually. The thing yeah. I say sometimes, long before AGI destroys the world, a narrow intelligence will win all the money in the stock market. <laughs> like, way, like yeah. just a narrow AI. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I want to, I don't know if I'm going to be the one who invents that. So I'm building Numerai to make sure that that narrow AI, you know, uses our data. <laughs> <laughs> so you're giving a platform to where millions of people can participate and uh, do build that narrow AI themselves. People love it when I ask this kind of question about books, about um, ideas and philosophers and so on. I was wondering if you had books or ideas, philosophers, thinkers that had an influence on your life when you were growing up or just uh, today that you would recommend that people check out blog posts, uh, podcasts, videos, all that kind of stuff. Is there something that just kind of had an impact on you? that you can recommend? A super kind of obvious one. It, the, um, I really want, I was reading Zero to One <laughs> mm. while coming up with Numerai. It was like, I was like halfway through the book. Um, and I really do like a lot of the ideas there. And it's it's also about kind of thinking big and um, uh, I, I, and also it's like peculiar little book. It's mm. like why, like there's a little picture of the hipster versus <laughs> Unabomber. <laughs> <laughs> and it's it's a weird little book. So I like there's kind of like some depth there. So in terms like, of a book on a if you're thinking of doing a startup, that's yeah, a, that's a good book. A book I like a lot is um, maybe my favorite book is David Deutsch's Beginning of Infinity. Mm, yeah. um, I just found that so optimistic. It, it puts you everything you read in science. It like makes the world feel like kind of colder because the like it's like you know we're just just coming from evolution and uh coming from nothing has nothing should be this way or whatever and humans are not very powerful we're just like scum on the earth and the way david deutsch sees things and argues he argues them with the same rigor that the cynics often use Mm -hmm. and then has a much better conclusion um that's uh you know some of the statements of things like you know anything that doesn't violate the laws of physics um can be solved like so ultimately arriving at a hopeful uh like a hopeful yeah without being like um a hippie you mentioned kind of advice for startups is there in general whether you do a startup or not do you have advice for young people today you're like an example of somebody who's paved their own path and were uh, i would say exceptionally successful is there advice somebody who's like 20 today 18 undergrad or thinking about going to college or in college and so on um, that you would give them? I think uh, I often tell young people, don't start companies. Is it not, don't start a company unless you're prepared to make it your life's work. Like that's a really good way of, of, of putting it. And a lot of people think, well, you know, 
um, this semester I'm going to take a semester off and in that one semester I'm going to start a company and sell it or whatever. Right. And it's just like, what are you talking about? It doesn't really work that way. You should be like super into the idea, so into it that you want to spend a really long time on it. Um, is that more about psychology or actually time allocation? Like, is it literally the, the fact that you need to give 100% for potentially years for it to succeed? Or is it more about just the mindset that uh, that's required? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, any, I think, yeah, you don't want to have, certainly don't want to have a plan to sell the company right. um, th- like quickly or, or something. What's like, or it's like a company that has a very, it's like a f- big fashion component. Like mm-hmm. it'll only work now. It's like an app for mm-hmm. something. Um, so yeah, I, that's, that's a big one. And then I also think something I've thought about recently is I had a job as a quant at a fund, uh, for about two and a half years. And part of me thinks if I had spent another two years there, I would have learned a lot more, um, and had even more knowledge to, to be where new to basically accelerate how long numerai took. So the idea that you can sit in an air-conditioned room and get free food or even sit at home now in your underwear and make a huge amount of money and learn whatever you want and get, it's just crazy. It's such a good deal. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That's the case for, I was terrified of that. Like a Google, I thought I would become really comfortable in that air-conditioned room. And that I was afraid the quant situation is... It's, I mean, what you present is, is really brilliant that it's exceptionally valuable, the lessons you learn, because you get to you get to get paid while you learn from others. If you see that, if you see jobs in in the space of your passion that way, that it's just an education. It's like the best kind of education. But of course, you have, from my perspective, you have to be really careful on not to get comfortable Again, in a relationship, then you buy a house or whatever the hell it is, and and then you get, you know, and then you convince yourself like, well, I have to pay these fees for the car, for the house, blah blah blah, and then and there's momentum, and all of a sudden you're on your deathbed, and there's grandchildren, uh, and uh, you're drinking whiskey and complaining about kids these days. Yeah. So I, you know, that I'm afraid of that momentum, but you're right. Like, there's something special about the education you get working at these companies. Yeah, and I, I, I remember on my desk, I had the uh, like a bunch of papers on quant finance, a bunch of papers on optimization, and then the, a paper on Ethereum just on my desk as well, and the, the white paper. And it's like, it's amazing how much, how kind of, and you can learn about, so that, that I also thought, I think this like idea of like learning about intersections of things. I don't think there are too many people that know like as much about crypto and quant finance and machine learning as I do. Mm-hmm. And that's um, a really nice set of three things to know stuff about. And that was c- because I had like free time in my job. <laughs> uh, okay. Let me ask the perfectly impractical, but the most important question. What's the meaning of all the things you're trying to do so many amazing things? Why? What's the meaning of this life of yours? <laughs> or ours? I don't know. Humans. Yeah, so I have you ever heard people say asking what the meaning of life is is like asking the wrong question or something. The question is wrong. Yeah. No, that usually people get too nervous to be able to, to say that because it's like your question sucks. <laughs> I don't think there's an answer. It's like the searching for it. It's like sometimes asking it 
it's like sometimes sitting back and looking up at the stars and being like, huh, I wonder if there's aliens up there. There's there's a useful um, like uh, palate cleanser aspect to it because it kind of wakes you up to like all the little busy, hurried day-to-day activities, all the meetings, all the things you like a part of. We're just like ants, a part of a system, a part of another system. And and then when this asking this bigger question allows you to kind of zoom out and think about it. But there's ultimately, uh, I think it's an impossible thing for a limited capacity, like cognitive capacity to, to capture. But it's fun to listen to somebody who's exceptionally successful, exceptionally busy now, who's also young like you, to ask these kinds of questions about like uh, death, you know, do you consider your own mortality kind of thing and and life, whether that enters your mind? Because it often doesn't. It gets it kind of almost gets in the way. Yeah. <laughs> it's amazing how many things you can like that are trivial that could like occupy a lot of your mind until something until something bad happens or something flips you. And then you start thinking about the people you love that are in your life. Then you start thinking about like, holy shit, this ride ends. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I just had COVID, um, and I had it quite bad. It wasn't what well, wasn't mm. really bad. It was just like I also got a simultaneous like lung infection, so I had like almost like bronchitis or whatever. I don't even I don't understand that stuff. But it felt I I started and then you're forced to be isolated, right? And so it's actually kind of nice it, because it's very mo- <laughs> it's very depressing, yeah, uh, yeah. and then. I've heard stories of, I think it's Sean Parker. He had like all these diseases as a child yeah. and he had to like just stay in bed for years. Mm-hmm. And then he like made Napster. <laughs> <laughs> it's like pretty cool. Um, so yeah, I had about 15 days of this recently, just last month. And it it feels like it did shock me into um, a new kind of uh, energy and ambition. Were there moments when you were just like terrified at the combination of loneliness and like, you know, the, the thing about COVID is like, there's some degree of uncertainty. Uh, yeah. Like it's, it feels like it's a new thing, a new monster that's arrived on this earth. And so, uh, you know, dealing with it alone, a lot of people are dying. It's like wondering like- Yeah, you do wonder, I mean, for sure. And then the, these there are the even um, new strains in South Africa, which is where I was. And maybe I, maybe the new strain had some interaction with my- yeah. genes and I'm just going to die. But ultimately it was liberating somehow. <laughs> I loved it. Oh, I loved, I loved that I got out of it. Um, okay. Because but... it also affects your mind. You get conf- you get confusion and kind of a lot of t- fatigue and you can't do your usual tricks of psyching yourself out of it. So, yeah. you know, sometimes it's like, oh man, I feel tired. Okay. I'm just going to go have coffee and then I'll be fine. Mm-hmm. It's like, now it's like, oh, I feel tired. Cough- I don't even want to get out of bed to get coffee because yeah. I feel so tired. And then you have to confront uh, there's no like quick fix cure yeah. and you're trapped at home. But that, so now you have this little thing that happened to you that was a reminder that you're mortal and uh, you get to carry that flag in, <laughs> in, uh, in, in trying to create something special in this world, right? With Numerai. Listen, uh, this was like one of my favorite conversations because you were, you're, the way you think about this world uh, of, money and just this world in general is so clear and you're able to uh, explain it so eloquently. Richard, it was really fun. Really appreciate you talking today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Richard Crabe and thank you to our sponsors, Audible Audiobooks, Trio Labs, Machine Learning Company, 
Blinkist app that summarizes books, and Athletic Greens all-in-one nutrition drink. Click the sponsor links to get a discount and to support this podcast. And now let me leave you with some words from Warren Buffett. Games are won by players who focus on the playing field, not by those whose eyes are glued to the scoreboard. Thank you for listening and hope to see you next time.